Good morning. As y'all are seated, uh, if you would open up to what I believe is it's page uh, 1014 in the Bibles that are under the chairs in front of you, if you don't have, if you didn't bring your own this morning, and also if you're new, there are Bibles nearby. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Peter 1 later on, as was read for us earlier. Again, that's page 1014 of the Bibles in your seats. First, let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sunlight. We thank you for our privilege of, of gathering and worshiping you today. We pray that now you would please come and speak to us through the power of your word and, and by your spirit. Lord, particularly today as we finish this series thinking about um, what it means to be friends to one another according to your good design. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are finally coming to the fifth part of our five-part series that we've been in for about a month. If you've been with us, you know that for the last number of weeks, we've been going to Proverbs, and we've been looking at what does Proverbs has to say to us about the nature of friendship. And we've been approaching this series with the Bible's assumption that everybody's got to have friends, we've said. Everyone needs friends. And at the same time, friendship is hard. It's complex. Sometimes it comes really naturally. Other times, uh, we tend to make mistakes. We need help, and that's why we've been turning to Proverbs every week, which is a book of wisdom. And for the last four weeks, we've been saying that when it comes to Proverbs and when you try to understand what it has to teach about the nature of friendship, there's at least four things that we see, and you might remember that they've all happened to start with C, just to make it easier for us to remember. So on one hand, Proverbs shows us that true friends are close. Okay, these, again, they're relationships we've said that go way below the surface. They're not just superficial. We've said that true friends are constant. So these are relationships that we stay with over time through thick and thin. We said they're careful. Okay, so friends, according to Proverbs, are people that think um, very cautiously about um, not only what they say, but how they say it, when they say it, how they can share it in a, in a time that's most effective. And then finally, last week, some of y'all will remember if you were here, that we looked at the teaching from Proverbs that true friends are candid. So particularly when it comes to our speech, um, friends are, this is a corollary of the, the third week, are even more thoughtful about really being willing to say something that a friend need, needs to hear. And that may be something that's harder to hear for some people. You know, we didn't spend as much time on this. It may also be something that's actually really encouraging for people that they really need to hear. Today, we're finally going to come to our last observation from the scriptures on the nature of friendships in this series. And, and that is the observation that true friends, according to the Bible, are Christ-centered. So when you look at everything that the Bible has to say about the nature of friendships, one of the most important conclusions that we can come to is that the strongest relationships and the most dependable relationships are the kind that are between two people that have both put their faith together in Jesus. Now, some of you wondering, okay, Brian, um, Proverbs doesn't necessarily talk specifically or explicitly about Jesus. So where, where is that coming from today? And the answer is, is right. Proverbs doesn't talk about him by name. But as we think about this important subject that we're looking at, here's another really important thing that we have to remember. As much wisdom as Proverbs has, it does, yes, come to us before Jesus' death and his, or his life, his death, and his resurrection. 
And in light of that, we can't assume that Proverbs alone has everything that we need to know about what the Bible has to teach us about friendship. Because if it did, if we were to say that it did, then we'd have to say that the life of Jesus has nothing to show us about how people can relate to one another. And, and I think we could all agree it would be impossible to ignore what has been described as the most selfless person that ever lived and pretend they have nothing to teach us about the nature of relationships. Instead, today, we're, we're going to go beyond Proverbs, and we're actually going to go forward to the New Testament. We're going to look at this passage that was read for us, specifically 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9, and we're going to ask, what does it mean for true friends to be Christ-centered? Again, there's a lot of things that we can learn about friendship in the New Testament, but maybe the most important thing that we can know when we look at it about the design and the nature of two friends that are walking together is that both of them are to have Jesus at the center of their lives. Now, if you've been here uh, before or regularly, you know that I normally have three points most mornings. Today, I just have one point. Okay? And, and, and as we look at the idea that true friends are Christ-centered, we're going to remember that they have a common love for Jesus. That's it. That's today in a nutshell. True friends, Christ-centered friends, have a common love for Jesus. And when that common love is there, it has the power to give us an experience of friendship like we, we can't have in every or in any other relationship. So we're going to be thinking about that for just the next couple minutes this morning. So this common love. Some of you might remember... A couple Sundays ago, um, Pastor Kevin reminded us, who, who, by the way, he's not here. He's with our teenagers as they're away on their retreat. When you read the book, The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis, he makes this observation about the nature of friendship. Do you remember this quote? He said, friendship, quote, is born at that moment when one person says to another, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. And what Lewis is obviously saying here is that at the core of friendship is uh, two people being united and being brought together by at least one common interest that they both have. And isn't this the case for how all of us work? You know, when you think about the people that you're closest with, how many of us would say that we met our friends, whether it was, um, you know, in, in an office at work or maybe in a dorm room long ago or in school? Very few of us walked into a room, took a hard look around the room, arbitrarily, you know, picked one person and went, I'm going for that person. That's going to be my friend. No, that might be the way that some of us have thought about dating. But it's not the way that we think about our friends. Okay, why is that? Because our friendships are born out of conversation that we have, aren't they? They're people that have common interests. Maybe they have a hobby um, that we share. Maybe they like the same kinds of music. They like to do the same kinds of fun, uh, things for fun. They happen to root for the, maybe the same college football team. Okay, friends are people that we have something shared with. And the reason that this really matters when we start to look at 1 Peter chapter 1 is we're going to be reminded that, as a, for, that for Christians, this is so important, and this sounds like Christian, uh, Sunday School 101, but according to Peter, for Christians, the number one love in our life has to be Jesus Christ. We have to love Jesus above all people and above all things. We can't be more passionate about anything else. And if that's the case, and if Jesus is our our greatest love, and if friendship is about two people sharing a common interest, then at least two things have to be true as a result of that. One, nothing else should allow two Christians to feel closer together than the common love that they have for Jesus. 
Nothing else should be able to bring two Christians together more. And then secondly, except for very unusual circumstances, if Jesus is the most important thing in our lives, and if there happen to be Christians that are around us, realistically, our best friend really needs to be a Christian. And we're going to talk about that more in just a couple minutes. But first, let's look at this passage from 1 Peter and see what does this have to show us about the nature of friendship. So if you have page 1014 in front of you, if you have your Bible open, let's, let's look at that together. Remember, Peter is one of the apostles, and he's writing to a group of Christians that are dispersed throughout modern-day Turkey. And he says this in verses 3 through 9. I'd actually really prefer to read it, and I hope that you'll follow along with me. I'm reading out of the, the same version that we have in our seats, which is the ESV. And as we look at this, ask yourself two questions. Two questions. First, what kind of hope or what kind of joy is Peter suggesting that Christians are supposed to have in relation to Jesus? So what's it supposed to look like? And then second, ask this, what is the grounds for that hope, according to Peter in these verses? What's the grounds for that joy? So let, let me read that now, and then we'll talk about it for a second. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Continuing, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Okay, so now that we read verses 3 through 9, we're going to look at those two questions. First, let, let's take them out of order. Let's go with the last one first. What's the grounds that Peter says that Christians are supposed to be joyful? And the obvious answer comes in 3 through 5, if you have it in front of you. Peter's saying... That because of God's mercy, or in light of it, and in light of the fact that he's caused us to be born again, that as a result, we, we have an inheritance that is undefiled, that's imperishable, and we're, we're being guarded by God's power. This is the reason that we should have joy. We are, we are to have hope because of this. This is, friends, just what the essence of the gospel is, what it means to be a Christian. We are a people who did not naturally live as we ought. We're sinful people, the Bible says. Simply means we love other things more than we love God. We love ourselves. We love other people more. We love material things more. But because of our faith in Jesus and because we've been forgiven of our sins in this way, we're now a new people. We're a new people and we have a new hope, Peter says. And because of what he's done for us, look at the language that Peter uses in verse 8 as to how we're supposed to feel as a result of this. Okay? It, it says something so interesting. It says, even though we don't see Jesus right now, we love him and we rejoice with him with a, with 
a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Okay, so to summarize what Peter's saying, if we have put our faith in Jesus, he says, Jesus has changed everything about us. He's changed who we are. We're, We're totally different people now. He's changed what our futures look like. He says we have an inheritance that's imperishable, that's undefiled, it's waiting for us. And as a result, it says, we are being filled, we are filled with joy. We're filled with a joy that is so overpowering and so explosive, it cannot be expressed. That's what the Christian life is supposed to look like, according to Peter. Now, just to reiterate, if we're a Christian, he seems to say, there's nothing else in our life that we can love more. No, no material things, no, no homes, no cars, no clothes, no um, people. We, we're not supposed to, if we're married, we're not supposed to love our spouse more or our children more or our grandchildren more or our parents more maybe. We're called to love him above all things and all people. And that's why we have this joy. Now, I said earlier that if that's the case, there's at least two things that have to be true as a result of this. We're going to think about this. First, because Jesus is the greatest love that any Christian is supposed to have, one, there's no common interest two Christians should have that is greater than the love that we both have for God. Okay? Nothing else should be able to compete for that. And think about this for just a second. Why should that be the case? Because the depth of any relationship between two people, isn't it true? It's the depth of the relationship is proportionate to the the degree of the shared interest that we have with one another. Okay, the the relationship is proportional. The depth of it goes about as deep as the shared love that we have. And, And let's think about what that means. Again, the more that we love something together, the closer that we tend to feel. And let me give an example of this. Okay, so I, I think he's out of town this morning, but I'm going I'm to talk just for a moment uh, about Sam Upchurch, okay, because I think Sam and I have mutual love. I got here back in November. Um, many of you remember, I arrived in late November, and our first Sunday here for our family was December 2nd. Now, since getting here in November, I've come to learn that Birmingham has an incredible number of great eating establishments to enjoy lovely, delectable things. But I have grown to have a great, great deep appreciation for Taco Mama. If you've been there, you know it's, it's a beautiful place. Dreams are made there. Um, I encourage you to go. I did not receive any sort of compensation from Taco Mama for sharing that, though I might have been interested. Taco Mama is a wonderful place, and I'll confess, if you were to ask me, Brian, let's go grab lunch. Where's the first place that's going to come into my mind? It's Taco Mama. I know it's not fancy, okay? But I leave there satisfied every time. Now, I... I have a love for Taco Mama. I suspect that Sam Upchurch has a love for Taco Mama because I was driving through Crestline a couple weeks ago and I saw Sam sitting outside with Cheryl and he was having a burrito himself, it looked like, and he looked very pleased. He too was loving Taco Mama. Now, here's, here's where all this talk about tacos is going. If the only love that Sam and I share, the only thing that we have in common is food, then our friendship is only going to go about so deep. It, it can't go that far. You might be able to call us friends, but it'd be pretty weird to say that in light of Taco Mama, we're close friends. That'd be kind of strange. On the other hand, 
because Sam and I have both put our faith in Jesus, and as a result, Sam and I are both entirely new people in Jesus, and, and we are both banking, we have both put the chips of our lives, all of our hopes onto Jesus. Because of that, we've only known each other for a couple months, but I believe our friendship has the potential for way more depth than people that just like to share food. Or, and to go another step further, it also means that in reality, if you were to hear Sam and I hanging out, and you were to only hear us talk about tacos or burritos or enchiladas, and if you were to never hear us talk about Jesus or the love that we have for Jesus or what what God's doing in our lives or what we're learning about him in the scriptures, you'd have to wonder if we have anything more deep in common, wouldn't you? Some of you might wonder if either of us is actually a Christian. In other words, there are many things that can draw Christian friends together. But if Jesus really is who Peter says he is and who the New Testament says that he should be in our lives, and if we really are filled with a joy that could be described as inexpressible, then there should be nothing else that's able to draw two Christians closer together than Jesus Christ. Now, also said earlier, and so, this is something that some of you are wondering about, that if what Peter says is true, that if you're a Christian, aside from maybe some extenuating circumstances, it really seems like our best friend needs to be a Christian. How do you come to that conclusion, you might be wondering? Let's, let's think about that for just a couple seconds. We've said several times now that friendship at its core is two people having a kind of common interest or a common love. But let's think about that just for a second. Why is that the case? So why is it uh, that when two people have a common interest, they're actually drawn towards one another? So for example, if you happen to love Alabama football, why is it that you might have an easier time just naturally connecting with someone else that loves Alabama football? Is it because Nick Saban needs you in his life? No. Why is that? The answer is obvious, isn't it? Because in understanding our love for maybe that program or that school or that team. In some way, that person might understand you better. They get you. They understand what makes you tick. They, one of the things that makes you tick. They, they understand the things that get you in, excited, the things that discourage you, maybe the things that frustrate you. And that's because, that's because at its core, friendship for us, it's not only our desire to be known by other people, but isn't it our desire to be understood by other people? We want people to not just know what our interests are, but we, we want them to love those things too because somehow in loving those things also, they get us. They understand what drives us and we naturally connect with them. Now, what that means is if we come across someone else um, that might have some similar interests, um, but they don't connect with the thing in our life that we love the most, isn't it true we might have a hard time sensing that they really understand us or they get us? We might respect each other. You know, we might, we might be friends on a superficial level, but there's a sense in, in which whatever that thing in our life might be, until this person can get that, until this person understands what it means for me to have our love for this, there's always a kind of a, there's always going to be a disconnect. They're never fully going to understand me. But interestingly, 
Um, someone else can come, a, come across and, uh, or come along in our lives. They might not share any of our normal interests. Okay? They, they, they might hate, um, they, might, they might love Auburn football. They, they might love um, not Taco Mama, but some other ter- terrible place. Who knows? <laughs> Forgive me. But if they have a shared love for Jesus, they get us, don't they? They, they may not share all the same loves, but they get the most important in our life, important love in our life, whatever that might be. Now, here's why this matters, is, again, as we think more about friendship. If we're a Christian, Christian, again, Peter says, the most important thing in our lives, the thing that brings us the most joy, the thing that brings us the most hope is supposed to be Jesus. And what that should mean is as a result, that when it comes to our friendships, unless that person has put their faith in Jesus, they might be a friend, but it's, it's probably realistic. They're never going to be our closest friend. And why is that? Because it's going to be hard for them to get us, to get the things that drive us, the things that make us tick. And the inverse is true as well. Someone might come along and they might understand everything about us, but if they can't get that, they don't get us. That's just how friendship works. We, we feel most understood when we share a common love. And it's, this is the same reason, for example, this doesn't only apply to friendship, this also applies to marriage. This is why the Bible talks about that, the fact that really, Christians are really supposed to only marry Christians. And the reason on that is, the reason for that is because um, you may share a lot of interest with someone again, but if, if you find yourself stepping into a, a, a relationship where the most important thing about you, the thing that animates you, the thing that, shape, that shapes the way that you spend your time, your thoughts, your money, if that something is some, something or someone in your life that someone else doesn't understand, there's always going to be a sense in which there's a dissonance between you and that person. And to add to that, it could be more even complex when you become when you realize that there are other people around you that are the opposite sex that also have a great love for Jesus. And, and you experience maybe a connection with them that you don't experience in what's supposed to be the most important relationship in your life outside of your relationship with God. So let's just pause for a moment as, and step back and think about where we've been today as we think about friends being Christ-centered and specifically having this common love for Jesus. What does it mean for us to have this Christ-centered relationship? Again, we've said it's, it's between two people that have an intimate relationship with Jesus. And, and so much so that if you were to remove that part of their identity, not only do you um, forever change the nature of the friendship, you really get two different people. If we take Peter's words to heart in these verses in 3 through 9 of First Peter 1, that's the way that it's supposed to look. But, on the other hand, when we have a relationship like that, we have a relationship that basically has the strength of titanium. Okay, it, can, it can endure almost anything. Some of you have heard the saying that um, your life can be going really well. You can be making a lot of money. You might uh, be famous. Uh, you might have a great reputation in your community. But if you don't have any friends... Life's really hard. But the opposite is true, too. You might not have a lot of money. Um, 
you you might have recently lost a job. You um, uh, you might not have a great reputation. You, you might be suffering from an illness, you know, from a chronic illness or something that you're recently diagnosed with. But when you have friends, at least the way that God's designed them, life is still really hard, but you can make it. Most importantly, that you can make it because God's sustaining you, but he has also placed people in your life around you that can help sustain you. And so now for just a final minute or so, I want to I step back from our series as a whole and ask just a couple questions about what we might learn together as we've looked at what is God's design for friendship, primarily in Proverbs, but also in other places in the Bible. First, I want to go back to that question. Um, do you have a, a, the friend, we talked about this the first week, do you have a friend that passes the 3 a.m. test, the, the 3 a.m. phone call? Do y'all remember this question? I, I was really encouraged. Some of you actually came to me and said, you know what, I, I thought about that question. Um, I do have friends that pass that test, but I haven't talked to them in a while, so I called them up this week, and I just checked on them. It was really good to talk to them. Do you have those friends in your life? it's possible that you don't. I want to encourage you. Some of you might be here, and and for various circumstances, um, it may be actually a very lonely season in your life Um, for many natural reasons, among those which maybe you just moved here, and you don't know anybody. I want to encourage you, if that's the case, pray for a friend. That's a great thing to ask God to help. And also know, this here, um, this is what we call a church family. And there are plenty of opportunities for you to get to know people here. You need to know that if you're struggling with finding a friend. A couple other things. One, um, this, you always have to be very careful with general, generalizations, but this may apply to, to some of our men um, more than our women when it comes to the nature of our friendship. But Like, do you actually talk about things that matter with your friends? Like, do you talk about more than, than food or, or, or the final four? or hunting, or whatever your, your thing might be, you know, are you talking about things of substance in your life? Some of us from, from, come from communities where culturally men never talked about our feelings. We never saw men do that. Our dads didn't do that. You know, other, other men in our lives didn't do it. I want to encourage you. Um, I want to make sure that our, our understanding of friendship is being framed by the scriptures and not just our culture. Because when you look at the scriptures, it has um, a wonderful way of talking about the fact that, as Ephesians 4.15 says, friends talk about things that matter. They speak truth and love. Okay? They, they encourage one another in God. And I'm hoping that there's going to be more and more opportunities for us as a church family to he- be hearing from men and women talking about their lives, bearing witness to some of the things that God has done in their lives. It's okay to talk about your feelings with your closest friends especially. And finally, and, and maybe the most important thing from our series, only Jesus Christ, the Bible says, can meet our deepest relational needs. Only Jesus can meet our deepest relational needs. We talked last week about the fact that to know Christ is to be fully laid bare and fully exposed and to yet be fully accepted. And we can add to that fully understood. You know, the moment that we look to any other person to be Jesus for us in terms of bearing the relational weight of being there at um, every given moment rather than any given moment, 
and um, really carrying an emotional burden that that is only something that Jesus is supposed to carry. When we do that, it is like trying to drive a 12-ton truck over a two-ton bridge. And our, our relationships, our natural friendships, cannot bear the weight of that which only Jesus is supposed to care for us or carry for us. But Jesus is able to meet our deepest relational needs. He is always there to listen. As it says in the gospel, he has now called us friend. He always has our ear to us, and he's always looking to sustain us. And so my prayer is that in the weeks to come, as, as I've said before, that we would not just be a friendly church, this would be a friend-making church, a place where others can build relationships. I encourage you, um, if the series has helped you at all, be thinking as well, not only who are the friends that I need in my life, but who can I be a friend for? Am I sure that I'm, for someone else, the kind of friend that I know I need? That God may work, may work through that, that he would glorify himself in that. Let's pray. God, we, we look at the Trinity and we, we see as people made in your image, we are wired for relationship. You are relational within yourself. God, thank you that you provided us um, the people that we need in our lives. And thank you most importantly that you provide us the ultimate friend in Jesus. Lord, we pray that you, are, you would take our relationships even deeper as we share our love for you, as we share about our common hope in you. Lord, and we pray in, in the nature of of our family here at St. Peter's, that people would see these relationships and they would be reminded of just how faithful a God you are to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.